Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Press and Communications Officer, and today we're going to be taking a look at wildlife policy changes adopted in China in the wake of the global coronavirus pandemic. Joining me is Aaron White, an EIA wildlife campaigner and China specialist, to talk about these changes, uh, where they might be positive and what causes for concern remain. Aaron, welcome and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Anytime. Okay, before we get into the meat of this, perhaps it might be a good idea to clarify something from the outset. The term wet markets has caught on in the international press. When we're talking about wet markets and wildlife markets in China, are we talking about the same thing? No, we're not. And I think that's something uh, it's important that we grasp at the outset. I've seen some uh, calls in uh, international press for wet markets to be banned. The problem here is the term wet market actually just refers to a fresh produce market. Um, like many founder around the world, a, a wet market might sell fresh vegetables, fresh fruit and, and meat. Uh, a minority of wet markets may sell uh, wildlife, either legally or illegally. So banning a wet market is not the way forward. Um, what we want to do is focus on trade in um, in wild animals and, and you know, adopt a sensible and reasonable policy responses there. Also, it's important that we don't miss that a lot of wildlife trade actually happens elsewhere. So while up until recently, at least there was certainly some trade in, in wild animals um, sold as meat in, in wet markets in China, these were only a minority of the wet markets. And also a lot of the wildlife trade really was happening on social media, uh, possibly through informal networks. It's So just focusing on these physical markets really um, misses a trick in really addressing the, the totality of wildlife trade. Okay. So, so once you've got all the conspiracy theories out of the way, most scientific opinion points to this pandemic originating in wildlife, um, in that it's a zoonotic disease which makes the jump from animal hosts to humans. Uh, what's the likelihood of wildlife trade leading to future pandemics if it continues unchecked? So the commentary I've been um, seeing from from scientists and epidemiologists who are working on this um, seems to pretty broadly agree that the way we've been treating and abusing the natural world and animals is putting us at greater risk of future pandemics, um, which is, of course, something that we've seen this year. So one element of this is destruction of natural habitats, um, disruption of ecosystems, uh, a second is industrial livestock farming, and a third is trade in wildlife. So it's essentially, it's the activities that firstly create interface, so create a, a close contact between uh, animals and wild uh, humans and wild animal species, providing an opportunity for for these uh, pathogens, for viruses to to jump over to humans. But also, it's more broadly the activities that are destroying the the buffer that that healthy and diverse ecosystems provide for for humans. So, and from both of these perspectives, it's really important that we address um, and as far as possible end uh, trade in wild animals that causes a, a risk to biodiversity or a risk to uh, human health. So, so in essence, then just banning a few markets in China uh, or a lot of markets in China, which happen to bear a strong resemblance to many of the markets we might find in other countries around the world, including our own, that's just not going to cut it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's, it's also important that we, we recognise what that wildlife trade is something that happens around the world. It's not just a problem in China. Um, 
And, you know, people hunting and consuming wild meat is something that happens around the world in Europe and North America as, as well. What, what we need to, to address is um, wildlife trade that is unsustainable, cruel, all that poses risks to human health. Okay. Now, uh, going back a, a month or two, um, after a market in Wuhan was identified as a possible source of the coronavirus's origin, I understand that China moved pretty quickly to outlaw the consumption of wildlife as a foodstuff. Um, I also understand that it made a few exceptions to that use. So, yeah, I think when, when this policy change came in, which was adopted at the end of February by the National People's Congress Standing Committee, that being the highest lawmaking body in China, it was covered in some international press as you know, China's brought in a total ban on wildlife trade. Um, and that wasn't quite the case. Firstly, the, uh, the, the ban only covered terrestrial wild animal species. So given that wildlife obviously covers all plants and all marine species as well, it certainly wasn't comprehensive ban. And even the, um, the fact that it doesn't cover any aquatic species means it also doesn't cover things such as turtles and giant salamanders, which are still um, bred and consumed at uh, in large quantities in China. Secondly, as you said, it only covered trade in breeding trade and trade in con for consumption as food. And that's only one way in which wildlife is traded and consumed in China. What it didn't ban was uh, other uses such as traditional medicine, pets, ornamental items, clothing. Uh, all of these are, are issues that need to be uh, looked at closely. And what we would like to see is, in particular, the, the current ban extended to cover any trade in and use of wildlife species that are threatened by trade. From your standpoint as a wildlife campaigner, what's the pressing issue in using wildlife in traditional Chinese medicine? There are a few issues. Um, firstly, some of the species that are still used legally in traditional Chinese medicine in China are among the species that are most threatened by uh, illegal trade in their body parts. For example, pangolins are uh, as many of our listeners will know, pangolins are the most trafficked mammal in the world. And one of the key um, drivers behind this trafficking is persistent demand for their scales for use in traditional Chinese medicine. Meanwhile, we have a situation where use of pangolin scales in traditional medicine is still legal in China. So enabling this, having this legal market is really hindering efforts to reduce demand for, for pangolins because the official policy is sending out a message to practitioners and consumers that this is a legitimate medicinal ingredient. This is something that is okay to consume. Um, secondly, we've got the question around where did items such as pangolin scales and leopard bones that are in legal trade, where did they come from? Um, this is uh, particularly pertinent for leopard bones as International trade in leopards has been banned since 1975. There are estimated to be fewer than 450 wild leopards in China. And yet we still have a, a legal market in medicinal uh, products containing leopard bone. Uh, government agencies say that this bone comes from stockpiles, uh, but there's no transparency around where these came from in the first place. How, um, you know, what are the quantities uh, held now? How much have they been depleted? So, Without that kind of transparency, there are a lot of questions, and a lot of concerns around whether actually this legal market is enabling the uh, laundering of illegally sourced leopard bone onto this legal market. So we have the impact on demand of legitimizing and perpetuating the demand for these threatened species. We have the potential for um, 
enabling uh, illegally sourced wildlife products to be passed off as legal. Um, and this is beyond these two species, pangolins and, and leopards. This laundering is something that has been seen again and again and again in um, China's legal markets for wildlife. It was widely documented that the uh, ivory market before it was banned in 2017 was actually enabling um, the sale of a lot of illegally sourced ivory um, and that many other species, you know, gi uh, giant salamanders, for example, which are uh, bred in and, and traded as food. Uh, it's been widely documented that this legal market in the farming um, has enabled the collection of, of the animals from the wild and kind of laundering them through this legal market. So yeah, there's a, a range of reasons. And uh, finally, it it complicates law enforcement you know, to have a, a legal market and to have a system where in some instances sale of a product might be legal with the right permits and others it might not be. Um, it creates both opportunities for, for mishandling of the permit system, for, for fraud in the permit system, but also for a, for a law enforcement officer, it's much more complicated when something might be or might be legal to might or might not be legal depending on a complicated permit system it's much easier to say anything any tiger skin rug for example any pangolin scales that might be offered for sale is illegal and then that can um really make the law enforcement process much easier and more effective basically when you've got one legal stream then it's so much easier to hide a much bigger illegal stream behind it because they don't know what they're looking for is that right Exactly. Yeah. Um, of course, the situation varies depending on what product you're looking at, what species you're looking at. Um, certainly for, for these species that, that we focus on at EIA, the species that are really threatened by illegal trade, um, all the indications are that having this legal market in China, which for many of these, um, for these uh, species is a primary consumer country, the effect of this legal market is um, really hampering efforts to to save the species and tackle the trafficking. Speaking of which, and I think fairly reasonably related, um, the World Health Organization recently came out and endorsed traditional Chinese medicines, but it didn't make any distinction about any of the treatments containing wildlife or wildlife products. What's the problem with this? Yeah, we were, we're concerned about this in that we're worried that what it does is send a message of um, approval of a validation of the entirety of Chinese medicine as it stands. Now, firstly, we've got to recognize that only a small minority of traditional Chinese medicine products contain any wild animals, um, any wild animal ingredients. And a lot of traditional Chinese medicine practitioners, academics, companies don't use any wild animal ingredients. So it's not the case that all traditional Chinese medicine is a problem. We're talking about a minority. That being said, there is still a real problem in China around use of threatened wild animal ingredients in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, we already talked about the continued use of pangolin scales, of leopard bone. There are also um, several other species that are threatened by trade, such as um, the uh, horns of saiga antelope, um, the bile of captive bred um, black bears. Um, many concerns, again, with, the, with species such as, as the bear that not only are there real welfare concerns around um, the, the horrific conditions that, and the horrific experiences that these bears are put mm. through, but also the effect on demand on legitimizing the use of this as an ingredient. Um, so the concern is that by in the WHO recognizing um, 
some traditional Chinese medicine uh, diagnoses in, in recent documents is that it it says it basically approves this whole industry as it is right now without specifically condemning the use of um, threatened wild animal ingredients. So, so basically, um, it would be not unreasonable to suggest that obviously you would want, um, and many people like yourself campaigning along similar issues, would want the WHO to take another look at what it's done and to finesse that, that endorsement to disqualify or to certainly actively and openly not endorse um, anything containing wild animal ingredients. Exactly. It's, it's really important that the um, actions of the WHO and of other, other governments as well isn't perceived as an endorsement of the use of wild animal um, ingredients in traditional Chinese medicine. You recently worked on EA's report, uh, Bitter Pill to Swallow, which was about the leopard bone trade in China. What were your kind of headline findings? Yeah, we'd been aware some time that there was a, as I mentioned, a legal trade in medicinal products that contain leopard bone in China. Um, and a lot of questions around this. I mean, how, you know, how is there a um, persistent legal trade in a product for which there's no obvious sustainable legal source? Um, so we firstly had a dig through some uh, government databases for permits that have been issued to pharmaceutical companies to produce the kind of formulations which might contain leopard bone. Um, in doing that, we we then had this huge database of um, possibilities of you know, formulations that might have leopard bone as an ingredient. We then checked these against the pharmaceutical company websites to see is this product actually being produced by this company? If so, does the website list ingredients? Um, in, and through this process, we found at least 31 different products that were listed on the pharmaceutical company website. And on the ingredients list for that product, there was leopard bone. We also found, um, I think it was 26 additional products that were uh, listed on third-party reference websites that, again, had leopard bone as an ingredient. So we're looking at at least 60 different products which appear to be being produced and sold with leopard bone as an ingredient. For some of these, we were then able to follow the paper trail through examination of, of some uh, government-issued labels to, to link back to the permits that had been given to those pharmaceutical companies to produce leopard bone products. Um, essentially, what, what this shows, what we found is that large-scale commercial trade in leopard bone products is being um, allowed to continue in just one transaction in 2018 one pharmaceutical company was allowed to purchase 1.23 tons of leopard bone so that's equivalent to the bones of around 150 leopards again the question um the question comes to mind where did these come from international yeah, trade yeah. is banned and, and leopards are, are highly endangered in china so where did the bones of 150 leopards come from and how could it possibly be um of a verifiable legal source I guess as well, as long as the government is maintaining the actual size of its stockpile um, as, as a, a secret, effectively, by keeping it so opaque, then it could be a bottomless pit, couldn't it? I mean, they could have had, they, they might have no leopard bones legitimately available for this. I mean, what, you've got um, dozens of companies here using them or claiming to use them, but no way of knowing at all where they're actually drawing that, that stock from. Uh, there's a thing, and, and also... Uh... 
there was a, a notification um, put out in 2006 by a Chinese government agency that essentially said um, pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies uh, can now only use up the existing stock they have in hand of, of leopard bone. But once again, back in 2006, these amounts that the companies had was not made public. And we also found, um, as I said, this uh, permit that was issued in 2018, it shows that procurement of new stock by pharmaceutical companies has in fact been allowed to continue um, in contravention of these um, these government regulations of, of this uh, 2006 notification. So there's a lot of questions that need to be answered around this. And and once again, the, the, the obvious conclusion is that this trade has to be banned. This is a seriously threatened species um, that is disappeared already from 85% of its Asian range um, and more than 5,300 Asian leopards have been seized from illegal trade since the year 2000. So there's high levels of poaching and illegal trade ongoing. Um, studies undertaken by um, for the CITES parties have identified uh, China as a country of primary concern with regard to, to illegal trade in leopards. Um, it's as I said, only around 450 left in China and and illegal killing still being documented. So this trade has to be banned. So what is, what is this um, state of play? I mean, the fact you've got um, no transparency in the origin of stockpile materials um, and, and the fact, well, it almost seems to be to be fact where the, the government's endorsement of leopard bone in TCM is, is actually a driver of poaching in, in, in other countries. What does that say about China's um, government's policies more broadly about its attitudes to wildlife? I think that um, firstly it's important to recognise that the move at the end of February to prohibit the trade and consumption of most wild animal species as food is a significant policy change. And if it's implemented effectively and ethically, taking into account the um, the welfare of the animals involved and crucially the the livelihoods um, and impact on the, the people who have been engaged in a trade that you know was legal until recently. Um, if this policy is implemented well, um, it's potentially a big step forward in reducing demand in and consumption of a whole host of wildlife species. And yet at the same time, we're still seeing this um, intransigent support for use of threatened wildlife in traditional medicine. So I think it speaks to the inconsistency that we've got at the moment in Chinese government policy. And I hope that the um, the relatively progressive, um, the the precautionary approach we've seen this year in you know not allowing trade where there is a perceived risk um, will be applied more broadly and that the um, China's lawmakers will take the opportunity provided by a, a revision to the wildlife law this year to to finally um, end and prohibit the use of threatened wildlife for any commercial purpose including traditional medicine because yeah. one of the things I have noticed in, in, in global media coverage in, in, in the last few weeks um, is the um, discussion without ever putting a figure or a size to it of the scale of demand for consuming wildlife in China. It seems to be largely assumed that everybody 
is running around eating leopards or sniffing pangolins or whatever it is they're held to do in the tabloids. But I understand that it's not that widespread at all. Is, is, that, is that the case? It's absolutely not the majority of people in China who are engaged in consumption of wild animals. Um, and yeah, that's a, a really unhelpful, unfair and frequently xenophobic narrative that, that you might sometimes see. Uh, there are a huge number of people in China who are um, actively engaged in wildlife conservation and protection of, of threatened species and who are also calling for the same kind of changes um, in in the policy. So an expansion of these recent bans to cover other uses such as traditional medicine. There's um, several uh, leading Chinese animal protection NGOs have, have, have made this call publicly. Many leading academics have. Um, so it's really important that we recognize that it is a minority of um, people in China who are in engaged in these kind of behaviors. And also that it's not just China, wildlife trade and unsustainable exploitation of natural resources is a global problem. Um, and you know, coming back to the, the, the question of um, risk of, of pandemics, these risks, again, are not just um, in, in China. Every country around the world needs to be looking um, very hard at their own um, policies around protection or, or exploitation of natural habitats, um, of wildlife trade, of um, industrial farming, and, and taking the progressive, um, you know, really ambitious uh, policy changes that, that we need to, to tackle these crises. So like when we say we're all in it together in reference to the pandemic, then we're all in it together in terms of actually finding a way out of it as well. You know? Yeah, there's nothing to be gained from from finger pointing at a certain country. We need to be, um, you know, open and discuss openly the the issues that, that there are with, with policies such as those that are, you know, making it more difficult to, to tackle demand for, for threatened species. But at the same time, um, we all need to be cognizant of how our behaviour and how um, the, the policies in the countries that we're in um, might be exacerbating the problem as well and, and calling on our own governments um, to, to be adopting the kind of policy shifts that, that we need for a stable climate and a, a, a healthy, uh, healthy biodiversity going in, into the future. And finally, um, what can people who are concerned about consumption and exploitation of wildlife and destruction of green spaces and all the terrible, terrible things we do to the one home we're ever going to have, what can we do to get policymakers to actually listen to our concerns and, and more importantly, actually act on them? Well, there are a range of things. Um, if you're lucky enough to live in a country with an elected representative, um, you can write to your to your MPs and, and ask them to be to be really pushing for progressive policy change. Um, in the UK, for example, that might be um, for greater meaningful protections of natural spaces for, for rewilding. Um, for example, uh, in other countries, it might be uh, for better implementation. And in the UK, of course, better implementation of, of laws to protect wildlife. It might be for um, yeah, an end to the uh, support for of extractive industries destroying um, pristine and irreplaceable um, wildlife habitats. And, and of course, supporting um, NGOs, scientists, activists who are, um, who are on the ground and who, who are on the front lines of these kind of, uh, of these fights. Well, Aaron, thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts with us today. Of course. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. 
Thank you very much for joining us, and wherever you are, stay safe out there.